So many things I love about the Village Church. One of them is that we have people that are willing to do those long readings of public scripture. Another one is that we have people that are willing to listen, right? And you're willing to listen to, no, honestly, the, the listening to the lengthy section of the public reading of scripture is not something that everyone is disciplined to do or even wants to do. And I'm glad to be among people who do. These stories, sometimes they're long. They go together. It's a vignette. It's a story. It's, it's a real story, but it's an account of something that actually happens, a narrative. And so we have to consider it together. And as we continue to consider these things, as we kind of go through this series on the church, Church Alive, the question I have for you this morning is what do you think a church alive should look like? When, when you think about a church alive, what do you think of? I think most of us think about what we encountered last week in Acts chapter 2, the Acts 2, 42 to 47, that sort of quintessential classic passage on the church where we see fellowship and we see breaking of bread and meals. We see great apostolic teaching. We see meals and homes and generosity. We can see continual visitors coming into the church and converts. And it just almost seems euphoric that as they're gathered together, all of these things are happening and it could not be any better. And sometimes I think we feel that way. We, we have such a great church, and I believe no matter who stands up here and opens God's word to us, the pastors in our church do a good job teaching our church, and, and the volunteers do a good job teaching and, and caring for our children and our youth, and we have great fellowship, and we share meals, and this is a generous church. We enjoy being together. We share the Lord's Supper together. Like, all of these things are true about us. And it can feel sort of euphoric to sort of be together in our gatherings and in the walls and windows Maybe sometimes until we take the ideas about the gospel out into the marketplace of ideas and the everyday ordinary things of life. And sometimes things can get difficult when we do, and that's what we see happening this morning in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, they're going up to the temple, the hour of prayer, which is the ninth hour. Peter and John are going about their daily lives. The temple was the center of daily life in this day and in this social context. It was a center of religious life, of course, but it was also the center of social life. It was the center of economic life. And so Peter and John are now taking their faith out into the center of their daily lives. These men went to the daily hour of prayer, 3 p.m., and they're taking their faith with them. And out of all the things that Peter and John could have heard or seen in that religious and economic and social sort of hub of their day, of their culture, out of all the things they could have heard and seen, what does Luke highlight this morning? A man lame for birth was carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple. And he's there asking for alms as he sees Peter and John. As we work through the book of Acts, we're going to see that some of these stories, they're descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive in their orientation. They're describing what happened for particular Christians in a particular place and time, which doesn't mean it has to happen exactly that way for all Christians in every place and every time. And yet, when we see these sort of descriptive sections, we can gain some really great principles for how Christians ought to live in their time, place, and culture. I think the first one we see this morning is this, that there's always people in need of help, the help of Jesus, always in need of the help that Jesus can bring in the areas of our daily lives, some a bit more obvious than others. If you haven't noticed, there's a lot of people around you that have a lot of needs. And maybe like Peter and John, the needs that we should focus on, recognize, are the ones that, that come from people that are willing to express their need. They're saying, yes, I have a need, and I'm willing to receive whatever kind of help you bring. What are the people in your life needing? 
What are they willing to admit they need? Do you see them? Do you see their need the way Peter and John saw this man's need? What Peter and, and John do when, when they see this need expressed is what we see next. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And they said, look at us. Don't you love the boldness there? He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, look, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took up right his hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And I think the second thing we see this morning is this, that Christians should use what they have to meet the greatest needs of the people around them. But what I do have, I give to you. So here's Peter saying, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, apostolic healing powers, right? I'm going to give to you. Through the power and the authority of Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And as you listen to the story, you might be thinking, yeah, you know, I wish I had apostolic healing giftings also. I wish, I wish I was also able to say this. What, well, I can't say, like, I don't have apostolic healing giftings, but what I do have, like, I've got some mutual funds, I've got a little margin in my checking account, got some ETFs I could cash out, right? Like, I've got some money that I could, I could help you. I could make a donation. I could buy you something, a meal. I could clothe you. I could pay your rent for a month. Like, what I do have, I can give. What I want to say is, if Peter and John had silver and gold, they likely would have given it. But they gave him something even greater. They met a greater need. And we might not have the, the apostolic healing gifts. As a church, we believe God still heals people. And we've seen that many times in the life of our church over the last dozen years. I don't, I don't know if any of you have that particular gifting, you know, but, but we've seen God at work in that way. But most of the times we see God at work in different ways. But regardless... We have the ability to meet the greater needs that people have because we have the power and the presence of Jesus at work in and through our lives as, as children of God, as his disciples. And we can meet those needs in the name of Jesus because that's what it means to meet a need in the name of Jesus. Peter says this is done in the name of Jesus, which means in the power of Jesus, in his authority, and, and, and in his presence. He is the one that's doing it. In some of your Bibles at the top, it says the Acts of the Apostles. That's what it means. These are the Acts of the Apostles. But what I think it should say is the Acts of Jesus Christ through his Apostles. That, that's what it's getting at. That's what the book maybe ought to be titled. The Acts of Jesus through his Apostles, because that's what's happening here. Luke could not be more than clear. What we should do when we see the greater needs in the lives of those around us is that we should help to meet those needs in the name of Jesus. He's, he's showing his presence in and through our lives. And this was the greater need that this man had. The question for us is, what are the greater needs of those around us? And how often are we thinking about them? When Jesus wants to meet one of these greater needs, what should we expect to happen? When he wants to meet one of these greater needs and he, and he prompts us to meet those needs, what should we expect to happen? And leaping up, he stood up and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. They recognized him as the one who was at the beautiful gate in the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We should expect Jesus to authenticate himself through us, bringing the help and the healing 
to those around us. We should expect Jesus as his followers to authenticate himself through us. This is always the way that Jesus has authenticated himself, by doing things to meet the needs of people. Now look, I know when you read the Gospels and when you read the book of Acts, much of the time this is Jesus bringing healing and doing miracles and feeding 5,000 plus women and children and lame people walking and blind people seeing And some of these things are still seen by people that I know who are Christians around the world. And we've seen God heal and move in the lives of people. And as a church, we believe Jesus can still move in these ways. And sometimes he authenticates his message and his presence by doing those things as he does authenticate his message when he provides for the needs that people have through you, through what you do have and possess, through the gifts and the abilities and the talents and the resources and all that you and I have been entrusted to by him. It's all from him. Whether it's a spiritual gift, a material blessing, whatever it is, it's meant to make its way out from our lives and into the lives of others. And Jesus authenticates himself. He shows them, hey, I'm here when this happens. And sometimes it happens as Jesus helps, and sometimes it happens as Jesus helps through healing. What might Jesus want us to do when we, when he authenticates his message and his presence in this way through us? When, when Jesus somehow does something, he prompts a need to be met and he meets it through us. Whatever that need is, he meets the need through us. And in meeting that need, he's authenticating his presence in the life of that person. What might we anticipate would happen next? While I clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astonished ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. That's a huge portico, by the way. There's a lot of people there. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why are you staring at us as though through by our own power, piety, we have made this man walk? When, when Peter and John see the reaction of these people to the good works of Jesus, they do not hesitate for a moment to begin to proclaim the good news about Jesus. And when Jesus does good works through us, he also wants to share the good news through us. And I believe there are two mistakes that we can make as Christians when this happens. When, when Jesus prompts you to see a need, and he, and, and, and he wants you to meet the need, and he meets that need through you, whatever it is, I believe he wants you to, to do those good works so that you can also share the good news. As an entree into sharing the good news, We can make two mistakes, I believe. We can make too little of the good works that are being done. Well, Bill Gates does that stuff, and that foundation does that stuff, and people give to people all the time, and Habitat for Humanity does this, and these people do that, and it's just, and we make too little of the good works. And we don't use it as an opportunity to share the gospel. Or we make too much of our part in the good works. (laughs) Look at that. And we distract people from, from the deeper reality and the greater blessing that comes through the reality of the gospel because now they're looking at us and the good things we've done for them. And it, it, I know it's this balance, but do not make too little of the good works and fail to show the gospel. And do not make too much of them and your part in them, rather, and distract people from the truth of the gospel. Peter doesn't make either of those mistakes. He acknowledges something incredible has been done. The guy was lame for 40 years. But he says, it's not happening through us. And he uses an opportunity to share something even more incredible with them. More incredible than a man walking who was lame for 40 years. He shares the truth of the gospel with them. 
He starts with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over to be denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, Righteous One, and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man the perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter uses this as an opportunity to tell them the the truth of the gospel. Do you see it? He he tells them, God has revealed himself to you in and through the person of Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself to us in and through the person of Jesus Christ. But guess what? We have rejected him. We've rejected him when we rejected Jesus. But God has revealed the truth about who he is again. And God authenticated the reality of who Jesus is through the resurrection. Did you see the truth of the resurrection there? And that when we recognize the truth of the reality of the gospel and when we receive it by faith, we can receive the help and the healing that we need for our bodies, yes, but but for our souls, something that's much greater than that. Commentators think that you've got going on here a couple things. Of course, you have the faith of the apostles. You've got the faith of Peter and John that that believe when they say, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Like, that's going to happen Got some faith. But commentators also believe there's, there's a faith in, in that man that he has seen. He's heard something about Jesus. There's an elementary, rudimentary kind of faith that he has in him. And he believes that Jesus can heal him because he believes there's something unique and special about Jesus. He might even believe he's Messiah. Many people, irreligious and religious alike, are ignorant to these realities, these realities that God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, that we as, as, as human beings have rejected him when we rejected Jesus. That God doubled down when he raised Christ from the dead to prove who Jesus was and what he said, and that we can receive him by faith. A lot of people, irreligious and religious people alike, are ignorant to these realities. That's what this says. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God has foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Peter acknowledges the ignorance because guess what? Peter himself was also once ignorant to these things. You remember the time when Jesus comes to the disciples and says, hey, who do they say that the Son of Man is? And they have all these answers. And at the end, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And this is true for all of us. We are all ignorant of these things until Jesus reveals them to us. As we proclaim these things, what should we encourage people to do after we share with them what Jesus has done for them, the the deeper need that Jesus meets through the reality, the truth of the gospel? after they are no longer sort of ignorant or out of the know, after they've heard the truths of the gospel clearly explained to them, what should we ask them to do? How should we encourage them to respond? Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that that he may send the Christ anointed for you, Jesus, whom you have from heaven, must receive until the time of restoring all things 
about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. We should tell them to repent and to turn around and to live differently in the way that Jesus always intended for them to live. Because there is no good news for anyone if we don't also share with them the hard news of the need to repent. There's, there's no good news about the new life Jesus has for us if we don't just actually turn from the life we were living before we understood these things. There is a repentance, there's a change, a, a different way of living that's in order. And there are a lot of people who are ignorant to these things that, that sit in churches week after week. One of my college-age daughters recently told me a story about an interaction she had with a bunch of other gals her age. And as they were sitting around a table sharing a meal, there were some of the gals talking about what was going to be happening at church that next week and how they were volunteering and get involved and, and these sorts of things. And, and they had things to do. But they were also talking about why they love the church. And the reason they love the church is because they said, it's like my therapy session. No matter how I've been living, I can go and I can just feel good about myself again. I mean, I'm telling you, this is all over Orange County. That is not the point. The point is not that we live however we want. And then we just show up on Sunday for some moralistic, therapeutic deism to feel better about ourselves. I don't know. The point is that we repent. We turn away from the way that we're living that's outside of, of God's will. And not just go to church on Sunday to get therapy and to feel better about ourselves, but to repent, to change. And then to enjoy the incredible life that God has for us in Christ. And what are the promises when we do that? When we do the hard work of repentance, what, what are the promises here? Our sins are forgiven, they're blotted out, right? Like that red stain that's on your favorite shirt that gets bleached out, right? We're, we're alive spiritually, our sins are forgiven, they're blotted out, our lives are refreshed by the Spirit of God. There's a new quality to our life, there's a new joy about the way we live. And our future is secure because we have the hope of heaven. You know, if anyone should have known these things, the religious people in Jesus' day should have known them. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it should be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed by the people. They knew this. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who come after him all, all also proclaim these days. And you were sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. All of their religious practices, all of their religious holidays, all of the things and the rituals they did were all meant to, to bless them by pointing them to the realities that Peter is proclaiming. I want to tell you that a life that's lived after repentance is a, is a blessed life. It's a good life. It's a joyful life. It's, it's a life where you're, 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 you're undone, you've undone all those burdens that are weighing you down, your, your sin and your guilt and your shame. And that's where life is at. It's a life that comes after repentance. It's a good life. It's a blessed life. But unfortunately, many religious people want the good works done in the name of Jesus while somehow being annoyed by what we all believe is the good news about Jesus. 
They think the good works are enough. They're going to live a religious life and do their good duties and good, do their good works and earn their own way and, you know, make people around them happy. And we see that happening here as, as chapter 4 starts. And they, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, all these religious leaders came to them. They were greatly annoyed. Why? Greatly annoyed because, like, something great had been done to this crippled guy. No, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people. And what were they teaching them? And proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. These religious, religious people of Jesus' day, they had their own religious views and expectations about the Savior God would send to them eventually. Their expectation that he would be a social savior that would save them out of their social troubles, mostly related to the Roman oppression that they were under. An oppressed people needing a social deliverer. Does that sound familiar? They were interested in a savior that would address their social problem, problems, sorry, but not too interested in a savior that addressed their personal sin problem. And there are a lot of religious people today that would associate themselves with Jesus in some way and that would associate themselves or connect themselves to Christianity in some way that have the same expectation. They believe that Jesus came to, to be a kind of savior primarily for our social troubles. I think today in, in some new ways we see this gospel versus social gospel kind of struggle going on. In our contemporary cultural context, in Village Church, I just want to be really clear as one of your pastors, for you, the social gospel says Jesus has come to save us from our social problems. The gospel says that Jesus has come to save us from our sin problem. The social gospel says that our social problems are our sin problem. Do you hear me? The social gospel says that our social problems, that is our sin problem. The social problems. The gospel says that Jesus has come to save us from our sin problem. And when he saves us from our sin problem, one of the fruits of the salvation that we have from our own personal sin problems and problem, ultimate sin problem, would be that we would help to solve the social problems in our social context. And why? So that we have a better society? In part, yes, but no. So that more people would one day see, not that Jesus can save us from more social problems, but that Jesus can solve our sin problem. Phyllis Church, look, the social gospel is an abortion of the gospel because it stops at social and it has no gospel. You can quote me on that. The social gospel is an abortion of the gospel because it stops at social and it has no gospel. That's what Paul would say to the Galatians. I know, I know a few months ago I told you this train analogy, and I thought about it again, so I thought, I'm going to share it again, and if it's old news to you, I'm sorry, but it struck me that I was with this South African, or with this friend who was telling me about his South African pastor, who shared this analogy about the train station. And he said, the way that so many professing Christians are treating our lives, it's like a train station. 
and there is one track, and it runs north and south. That's it. And there's a train station in the middle, and, and, and we are in the train station. And the train station that runs north runs to like a paradise, wonderful place that everyone would want to be. And the one leading south leads to somewhere horrible. And we know that as, as people that are in the train station, we know, and we know what ticket they should punch. We know what track they should send them on. And you know what we're doing? We're spending all of our time remodeling the train station. Let's just make it look better for everyone. And now look, I, we're not against any of that. Did you hear what I said? The gospel, when God changes our lives, when Jesus changes our lives, one of the fruits of that is that we would want to address the social issues in our context. Absolutely. Because Jesus has not just come to save us. He's come to change not just us, but, but systems and structures. And one day he will come again and it all will be changed forever. So, so absolutely. But that, our main job is not to beautify the train station is to tell people how they get on the northbound train. Listen, the greatest opposition to the gospel in our day may not come from people who reject the gospel outright, but from people who profess another gospel. The social gospel is pretty popular today. Look, no mainline marginal church will ever oppose us for doing good. You'll never be opposed for what you do by people that profess the social gospel. Keep taking care of single moms. Keep feeding people food. Keep helping people get better jobs. Keep advocating for racial and social justice. Keep doing all of these things. Like you're never going to get any flack. You're never going to get opposed for doing those things. And as Christians, there's no reason why we should not be involved in helping to make these things right. They'll never oppose you for what you do, but they will oppose you for what you say. Peter and the apostles are not being opposed because of what they did. Did you notice that? They're being opposed because of what they said. Because they said there's salvation in no other name. Because they said that this is all done in the name of Jesus. The greatest opposition to the gospel in our day may not come from irreligious people. It may come from religious people who are passionately pushing the social gospel. I just want to press pause for a moment because I feel like I'm getting a little worked up. And I also feel like, like maybe some of you have like actually been entrapped in a social gospel. And you, you, you might not have realized it. Again, as Christians, we should be involved addressing the social needs and that, that, that are around us. But that's not where it ends. That's a fruit of the Christian life. And if you're wondering if you're caught up in something and you're seeing it rightly, like, your pastors are here. We'd love to talk with you about this. No matter where the opposition to God and his gospel comes from, He'll always continue to do his work. <laughs> in fact, some of his greatest work happens in the midst of the greatest opposition, doesn't it? You see what it says in verse 4? But many of those who had heard the word believed. They heard Peter remind them of these things. 
preached the gospel, they believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So recently we saw 3,000 out of the church, now we see 5,000. Like there is fruit in what's happening here. But just because God maybe will accomplish his best work through some of the greatest opposition doesn't mean the opposition isn't real. It, it is real. Maybe you felt that recently. They, they sure did. Look at verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, and all who were the high priestly family. When they set them in the midst, they, applied, they inquired, by what power or name did you do this? you got the rulers, the elders, the scribes. You've got the high priest. You've got the whole high priest. You've got really uber-religious people. And they, they, they have a lot of authority in this cultural context. And in many cultures in the world, very religious people are in very powerful places. And they can use the power that they have against God's people. I see this most of the time as I turn on any news channel. It does not matter what network it is the religious correspondence that most of them have on their network. It could be right, it could be left, it could be whatever you think is center that's not, whatever. It could be whatever network it is, right? Whatever religious pundits they have, they're all, they're all social gospel people. Most, most all of them. And religious people that, that go to church on Sunday and then head over to their office at the Senate or Congress building on Monday, you know, they... they, they they're together with these people, and they have a lot of power and authority. Like, I have a daughter who returns home tomorrow from interning for the last three months in D.C. in a very powerful organization, and she's talking to very powerful people. And part of her assessment is there are some policies that are worth advocating for in these ways because, because there's a lot that's happening here. It's not where our hope is, but there are a lot of, of people that are opposed to the gospel that sit in church every Sunday. They have a lot of power. The power is real, and they will use it. And they've used it already to do two things to Peter and John, put them in prison, at least for a night, just holding cell, and to kind of destroy their social credit. I mean, <laughs> you know, when you stand people up in front of, of society and you're like, yeah, naughty, naughty, these guys, I mean, that, that happens a lot in our, our context, and I think it's happening in part here. The question is, what should we do when the... These people use the power that they have. These religious people use the power that they have what, 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 what should, to, to affect our lives in some way. What should we do? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and the people of uh, the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this has been healed, he has been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone which the, you re, was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. He doubles down. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When they use their power against us, we should use it as an opportunity to continue to proclaim the power of the gospel. Peter doesn't fall into the trap of being sucked back into a, a powerless gospel, a social gospel. He proclaims the truth of the gospel all, all the more boldly, the exclusive claims of Jesus. Now, I, I know what... Many of you are probably thinking, <laughs> man, it's great for Peter and John. It's great for them. They were apostles. 
And apparently they had like apostolic healing powers and like all kinds of stuff was going on. It was crazy. That was great for them, but I'm not sure about me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if this is for me. I get it. Look at verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, I'm not assuming you're uneducated, but you're very educated people. Common men. You're not common. You're great people. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I want to tell you this morning that God can use any Christian who has been with Jesus to proclaim the power of of Christ and his gospel in the midst of any kind of opposition. God can use any Christian who has been with Jesus, any Christian, hear me, that has been with Jesus. If you're a Christian and you're spending regular time with Jesus and you know his word and you're filled with the Spirit, God can use you to proclaim the power of Christ and the gospel in the midst of any kind of opposition. If you've been reading his word, and, and listen, if you're in our reading plan and you're reading the word, you know, daily, and, and if you're in the Gospels, and I've always told you, if you want to go anywhere, go to the Gospels. If you're not reading anywhere, don't just read the Psalms. Read the Gospels because if you read the Gospels and you see the life and ministry of Jesus and you see his interaction with other people and you see his heart for other people, you see his heart for the marginalized and the distressed and the oppressed, if you see his heart for the people that are pressed down, that have needs, and you see how he met those needs and also their ultimate, lead, ultimate needs. If you, if you spend time in the Gospels, you have to be transformed by Jesus. You will be. Any Christian who has been with Jesus, if you have been with Jesus in the Gospels and you've seen him, his heart for people, and his ultimate heart that they be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, it's all you need. What are people that oppose to us? What do they do when we talk about the good news? Backed up by so many good works. Wouldn't it be great if there were so many good works that evangelical Christians were doing that when they, when they actually evangelized and shared the good news, it would, it would be so warmly received? But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But they commanded them to leave the council. They conferred with one another. <laughs> what are we going to do? This notable sign has been performed through these guys. We can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further, let's warn them not to speak anymore in this name. Right? They, they won't stop us from doing good works, but they're going to stop us from proclaiming. They want to stop us from proclaiming the good news. So what could Christians do when, when people in power in their culture use their social, their political authority to tell them not to talk about the good news? Well, I think that's a pretty simple answer, and we see it in 18 and 20. They called them, charged them not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and Peter and John look, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you can judge that. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves but to do good works and to proclaim the good news. We can't help ourselves but do that. We can't help ourselves to do that. And isn't it sad that there are people that can't help themselves but to do good works, but they don't understand the good news and they won't proclaim it. And isn't it sad that there are a lot of people that really want to proclaim the good news, but they don't do the good works really. 
What Peter's saying is we can't help ourselves to do these things. We can't help but do the good works and proclaim the good news. And wouldn't it be great if we got the same outcome Peter and John did? Look at verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, whatever that means, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Why? Because of the people. For all who were praising God for what had happened, for the man who was signed, was healing, was formed, was, was that way for more than 40 years. He was more than 40 years old. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we get to the place in our culture where Jesus-loving, gospel-proclaiming Christians are doing so many good works that when the people in our community see it and we begin to proclaim the truth of the gospel and when we get persecuted or opposed or oppressed because of it, our neighbors actually stand up for us. They say, no, 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 you can't, you can't be pressing those people down. They do too many good things for our culture, our neighborhood, our, our communities, our society. Many years ago, I was asked by a friend, you know, what would your city say if your church ceased to exist? Would anyone notice or care? And it's always been a question that sort of haunted me a little bit, you know. I don't know. I don't want to feel guilty and like I need to do more works and more works and more works and I'm not doing enough and we're not doing enough and those kinds of things. But I think it is a good question. Would the people in our city rise up and say, no, 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 you can't, you can't be pressing down on those people. Those people, we need them. Well, we're obviously not in that place yet. <laughs> so, so what should Christians do when they face this kind of opposition in the culture they live in? Should they peacefully protest? That might work. I think the Bible would be okay with that. I think our culture would be okay with that. Should they not so peacefully protest? Seems that works in our culture. I'm not sure that works with the Bible. Should they legislate? Should we legislate? I think, I think there's some room for that. I think we should pursue some of those things. I just got done telling you, I have a daughter that's helping to lobby towards some of those ends in D.C. because there are some things that are worth advocating for even in those ways. I think so. What ultimately should Christians do? What would be the best thing to do? When they were released, they went to their friends and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city is gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What should Christians do when they face this kind of opposition? When they face this kind of opposition, Christians should pray together. They should pray together grounded in Scripture, not their own thoughts and feelings. 
We should pray together grounded in Scripture, not just our own thoughts and feelings. Like if we don't ground our prayers during times like these in Scripture, I think it can be really easy to ground our prayers in things like anger and bitterness, unrighteous anger and bitterness. There is righteous anger. Unrighteous anger and bitterness and resentment and revenge and things that are not really a great basis for prayer. (laughs) I mean, God may indeed not answer. It might hinder us, you know, as we pray. We ground ourselves there. But they ground themselves in, in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And if you look at the split screen, you'll see that it's essentially the exact quote from Psalm 2, 1 to 2. Then in Acts 4, the church gathers and, and they, they open the scriptures and they ground themselves in, in what they know has already been revealed in the scriptures. And they pray those things. And what do they pray for? Out of that scripture, what do they pray for? They pray for three things. For God to see the threat. God, look at this. Look upon this threat. That literally means see it. And I want to tell you this morning, God sees. We should pray that he would give us boldness to continue to speak in spite of opposition. And for God to continue to move to authenticate his power and his presence through us. What can Christians expect when they pray this kind of prayer grounded in these kinds of scriptures? Look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When Christians pray together, when they pray scripture together, they should expect God to answer because the things that we're praying are the things they already know to be his will. It's a great place. I mean, they asked God to see, and God actually shook the place. I think in part to say, like, look, I'm here, I see, I know, I'm present in the way that he was earlier in Acts chapter 2. They asked God to give them boldness, and they're giving more than just sort of an invigoration of their own natural boldness, right? He fills them with his spirit to embolden them in a way they could not be otherwise. And they asked God to move by continuing to do his good works as they proclaim the truth of the gospel. And in reality, the rest of the book of Acts is the answer to this prayer. The entire rest of the book of Acts is is Jesus moving, doing good works, and then proclaiming the good news. Jesus answers the prayer. As we end our time this morning in this part of the scripture, I want to let you know um, we have a God who knows what this is like. We have a God who knows what this is like. As early as Genesis chapter 3, our God is is opposed by Satan himself after the fall. And and we see the opposition happening uh, uh, in the face of God's people. And and we see a a glimpse of of sort of how the battle is going to end in Genesis 3. But we see the beginning of the opposition by the greatest enemy of the faith. And the Old Testament is is really a, a story of of, of redemption history, but, but in the midst of that story is interwoven a story of really the nations of the earth trying to plot against God's anointed one, the Messiah, to plot against Jesus and his line. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see they're constantly trying to come through and come against the messianic line. There's, there's opposition to it the whole way through the Old Testament. Even his own people opposing him. They oppose the prophets who were speaking for God. They're killing all of the prophets. There is opposition. God has had opposition from Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 3, rather, through the Old Testament, all through the New Testament. 
Jesus comes. God comes into human history in the person of Jesus Christ. He's opposed by his own people. He's opposed by his own family. He's betrayed by one of his disciples. But he did what he came to do. He lived a sinless life on our behalf. And then he went to the cross to die a substitutionary death. And, uh, and at the cross, he was opposed by Satan. And in his there, he was opposed by all these things. Temptation to sin, the reality of death in front of them. But none of those things could stop him. He went to the cross and died on the cross and in our place and for our sins. And not even death could stop him. He rose from death again through the resurrection. And I think this reminds us of the ultimate good news this morning. It's this, that Jesus overcame every opposition to save us. And he will overcome every opposition to use us in his plan to save others. I want you to see this morning that Jesus Christ overcame to save us from our sin. And he will overcome every opposition that we can see in front of us. And he will use us in his plan to save others from the same. Village Church, I hope that's good news for you this morning. I want to ask you to bow your head and your heart with me for a moment. Because as we wrap up our time in the scripture this morning, I feel like we, we, we can't wrap up in a section of scripture where it talks about the church going into a time of corporate prayer without praying together. I mean, here we all are, you know. So would you bow your head and your heart for a moment? And I want to read a scripture to you that um, is a scripture that is in the context of opposition and persecution out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I think it's one of my new life verses for this season. I'm going to read it through three times. And I just want you to pray through the concepts here regarding the opposition we might face. So we keep on praying for you asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live. And you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Would you spend just a moment praying over some of those concepts there as it relates to the realities of living out our faith in the marketplace of ideas, the opposition we talked about this morning. So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live. And you will be honored along with him. 
This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, all of it's made possible because of your grace. So as we sing, we sing because we're grateful for the grace that we've been shown in Christ. As we go to the back and we receive communion, we remember your body given for us, your blood shed for us to remind us of these realities. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us. We pray that you'd help us to receive it and celebrate it, enjoy it, proclaim it. We do it in your name and for your sake, Jesus. Amen.